the practice of psychiatry has become increasingly focused on the goal of finding the right medication for a given diagnosis. But an emphasis on biologic research and training has meant that many other lines of inquiry, such as psychosocial and cultural research, may no longer be seen as central to advancing psychiatric understanding. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with Caleb Gardner, a psychiatrist who recently completed his residency at Cambridge Health Alliance. Dr. Gardner has co-authored a perspective article on rethinking psychiatric knowledge creation and training to respond to the needs of patients, families, and communities. Dr. Gardner, in your perspective article, you discuss what you call the checklist-style amalgamations of symptoms that have taken the place of thoughtful diagnosis and the trial-and-error medication management that currently dominates psychiatric practice. So when did the shift toward this sort of practice start to occur? That's a great question. I think that there are sort of two parts to it. One is the just general shift in psychiatry that's been well documented and is well known from a more psychoanalytic and psychodynamic approach in the mainstream to what we describe and as others have described as a more biological approach. The Harvard historian Anne Harrington has written an excellent book that describes this change in psychiatry over the last hundred or so years quite well. That came out in 2019 called Mind Fixers, which we reference in our article. And she identifies the 1980s as around the time when this shift occurred. But of course, there were elements that were changing for many decades prior and for many various reasons. The other part of this question, when we think about psychiatric diagnosis, we have to think about the DSM. And recently, and also for a long time, there's been a lot of criticism of the DSM and the way in which diagnoses are made in this sort of checklist kind of way that looks at symptoms. And we reference Alan Francis's book. Alan Francis was a chairman of the DSM-4 task force, and he subsequently become quite critical of the DSM and the proliferation of symptoms and sort of checkboxes that have gone into creating it. And in some ways, people have said, and this is from Thomas Insull, who was a head of the NIMH, he has said that coming up with diagnoses on the consensus about clusters of clinical symptoms is equivalent to creating a diagnostic system based on the nature of chest pain and the quality of a fever, rather than having a deeper understanding of the etiologies of some of these illnesses. And this is something, to go back to your question, that has been, the DSM has been around for a very long time, but it is, as I said, proliferating and in terms of diagnoses, and it's becoming more and more unwieldy. So what system-level factors have perpetuated the focus on medication in psychiatry? Oh, man, there are a lot. And in some ways, I think it's beyond the scope of our paper. It's certainly something we thought about, but beyond the scope of our paper to really enumerate them and to do justice to describing all of the various influences that have gone into sort of guiding psychiatry in the direction that it's gone. But I would say that there are, again, I would refer to Anne Harrington's book, especially with regard to how psychiatry itself made the shift towards a more biological deterministic approach to mental illness for a variety of reasons. Some of them had to do with feeling as though to regain the public's trust and confidence describing mental illness as a discrete 
and explainable brain problem in all instances was perhaps the way to go. Another important influence is pharmaceutical companies who certainly benefit from that kind of an approach. And also, I think insurance companies benefit from a more deterministic and algorithmic way of thinking about mental illness. And then all of these influences have combined to get us to where we are now. So on the flip side, looking at psychotherapies, what do you see as the major successes in that realm and what are the limitations? Well, I think that in some ways, and this can go back to the beginnings of psychotherapy as we know it, namely psychoanalysis, I think the major successes have been an increased understanding in the way people's minds work. And as understanding has increased, appreciation for complexity has increased as well. And we mentioned in our paper that a lot of these increases in complexity are mirrored by advancements in modern neuroscience as well. So I think that's an important element that psychotherapy has added. I also think that with the proliferation of other psychotherapeutic modalities, such as cognitive techniques, there have come to exist many different ways of approaching different people with different problems within the realm of psychotherapy, and there's a lot to offer, many different options. And the kinds of side effects that we often see with psychopharmacology, which of course is incredibly important and often life-saving in psychiatry, but the kinds of side effects that we see with psychopharm don't really exist with psychotherapy. And the limitations are that, one, the psychotherapies are, for the most part, very difficult to study. Some of the more manualized therapies are easier to study, and some of the approaches, such as psychodynamic approaches, are inherently more difficult to study, although people have been doing that, and we hope that more will continue. The work of Jonathan Shedler has done a good job of reviewing some of the best research in both psychodynamic and other psychotherapies. And once again, psychotherapy is one tool among a variety of tools that psychiatrists should have going forward to encounter these complicated illnesses and complicated individual people. So thinking about research, about undertaking studies, in your article, you describe how over the past half century, biologic research has come to pretty much replace psychosocial, cultural, public health, community research. Has that trend been driven by the difficulty of psychosocial research, by the funding availability, by the interests of investigators? What's behind it? So to start off with, there's this quote. I mentioned Thomas Insel before, who used to be the head of the NIMH from 2002 to 2015. And in 2017, he's quoted as saying that the push on biological research that he spearheaded at the NIMH cost about $20 billion, but didn't move the needle in reducing suicide, reducing hospitalizations, improving recovery for the tens of millions of people who have mental illness. And that's obviously quite a statement coming from him. And to answer your question, I think that there are probably many different elements that go into why this has happened, this sort of all-in approach to biological research to the exclusion of many other areas of inquiry in psychiatry, I think that there's been an understandably large amount of hope placed in biochemistry and discoveries in neuroimaging and all of these very interesting areas of inquiry, but they just haven't panned out in terms of having 
immediate clinical applications. It certainly doesn't mean that basic neuroscience shouldn't continue. By all means, it's incredibly interesting, and we hope that there will be things that come out of it. The problem is that, as you mentioned, this has sort of replaced a lot of other areas of inquiry, such as studies for geriatric psychiatry in an aging population, global mental health, refugee health, child and adolescent mental health, consultation liaison psychiatry, and substance use care and prevention, all areas which are very related to some of the important issues of our times are getting short shrift right now in terms of research. You say in your article that psychiatry still lacks a comprehensive biologic understanding of either the causes of psychological problems or our available treatments. Do you see progress being made on that front? What are the barriers to answering those questions? Well, so I absolutely see progress being made. I think that huge progress in our understanding of the mind and how it works and how it can lead to mental illness has certainly been made in neuroscience and many other of our basic science approaches. We've learned a huge amount. And as I mentioned also, I think a huge amount has been learned in terms of psychodynamic approaches and how people relate to one another and where things can go wrong and how minds develop over the course of a lifetime. So much new and exciting information has been gotten. The thing is that as we learn more, we're also learning about how complicated the mind is. And that's one of the points that we begin the paper with and end it with is that there is still so much that is unknown about the mind and therefore also mental illness. And we are finding out more and more, but we're also finding more and more complexities, which I think is one of the reasons that retaining an approach to clinical psychiatry that includes time for subtlety, interest in complexities in individual people and individual minds is so important. Finally, you say in your article that psychiatry needs to be rebuilt, and you think that academics have a role in that process. So what kinds of changes do you think need to be made to medical training to expand the field, better meet the needs of patients? Some specific changes that need to be made are, one, more attention to some of the areas of inquiry that I mentioned earlier, um, namely geriatric psychiatry, global mental health, refugee health, child and adolescent mental health, consultation liaison psychiatry, and substance use care and prevention. But we also write that reintroduction, in a way, of psychotherapy training is incredibly important in training. And I say reintroduction because so many programs now are providing minimal training, at least compared to what they used to many years ago. And this is important, not just because psychotherapy is important for psychiatry as a treatment in and of itself, but it's also a way of developing and emphasizing the value of understanding context and the power of meaning in human health and illness, how one event or circumstance can have very different meanings for different people with different backgrounds. And this is something that is important both for psychiatry and also medicine in general in terms of understanding the context of people and the illnesses that they are coming in with. Thank you, Dr. Gardner.